where we're sinking. All right. Welcome back to Prospero's Pit. Today we have a very special, <laughs> a special episode because we have the king himself, the king of the castle, uh, writer, poet, uh, extraordinaire. <laughs> escaper of the law. Escaper of the law. Uh, W.E. Lethem <laughs> in the building with us. Um, but currently we're recording this podcast episode during the Chiefs. Uh, Bengals game right now in the playoffs. So if you hear explosions in the distance, I think that means we won. You see us look down under the table. That means we're watching on our phone. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But uh, here we are. This is the man, uh, <laughs> the man that has given me this opportunity in the first place. Uh, I'm like, yeah, this is. I, I I don't know what episode we're we're in, but hopefully we're well down and you figured out all of the flaws. Yeah, so. exactly. So you we'll be mistake look younger, free. You can wittier, all right? That shit. Yeah, you are the uh, oldest guest we've had so far. Uh, so not be hard. <laughs> yeah. So if you need me to start talking slower, I can. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, just playing. But here, um, I don't know. Where should we even start? I guess we should start with uh let's start with a toast. Yeah, let's because start we're not with supposed toast. to do this and you've been assiduously trying to avoid things on camera, but guess what? Here we are. Here we are. All right. I'm gonna dedicate this to my late friend, Brad Willoughby. To Brad the shit killed him. To Brad. <laughs> I mean, probably We'll get by tonight. He's been at it. He was at it harder. Right, exactly. <laughs> For a longer time. But to Bradley. To Bradley. Yes. Cheers. Oh, 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 oh. Ah. Woo. That stuff's smooth, yeah. as Colonel Potter would say. Fireball. I've seen better days with those. <laughs> well, excellent. So what but, the hell are we doing here? Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> I guess we'll start off with how the hell I even got this job, which was uh, we're almost coming up on a year now. Is that true? Yeah, we're like two months away. It's almost cow. been a year. Well, I mean, you walked in the door. Yeah. And, I mean, you started, you go, my number one line was, we ain't hiring anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you said no straight to my face yep. before I even finished my pitch. That's what I say to everybody. Yeah, yeah. I said, hold up. Well, listen, <laughs> we've the met truth before. The is, is you still aren't hired. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Technically, I haven't signed anything. <laughs> so we'll keep it at that. But no, Just being kidding. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I, no, I mean something about it, you could tell you 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 have a lot of the juice that we used to have back before we creeped when we did shit. <laughs> yeah, so we'll see where that takes me. But uh, <laughs> probably something like to the this. pit of Prosperos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, I actually met you before. It was right um, after I did my first, but technically second graduation at Mizzou because my. During the pandemic, that. yeah, graduation got canceled, 2020, and so we all like went our separate ways, but Mizzou hosted another one that me and my family decided to come out to and do the whole shebang, the walk, and on our way out, we flew out of KC, and we came through Prosperos, and I was uh, just meandering when the front gates were, or the crates you keep all the books outside on just like suddenly collapsed out of nowhere. They just collapsed. And there I was with a couple of my friends putting it back together when you came out and you're like, you don't, you, you guys don't have to do that. And we're like, don't, don't worry about it. And yeah. I remember well, you got a, you got a graduation book too, if I remember correctly. Yes. Right? What the hell did you get? I took Walden's Pond. Have you read it? Yeah, I have. Okay. Yeah, I have read it. Thank you very much. Right. But I remember coming in and trying to talk, talk to you because you were like, just take whatever you want, but nothing from the front two tables. And I was trying to get your attention. You were like listening to a podcast while also simultaneously on the phone. It was just a lot was going on. 
I was trying Pretend to tend to multitask because yeah. you had a copy of Blue Highways on the front table, and I was trying to tell you, I was like, oh, I've met the wet met Will, and I met the, the Elise Heat Moon and all that. And you were like, kid, just take a book and get out of here. <laughs> well, it's great because that's a book I like to re- recommend to people. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's he was a seminal character in your life, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And a Missouri boy. Yeah, so, uh, still in Columbia. Yeah, and, and was a professor at Mizzou and everything. Was a professor for my mother. Um, that's how I kind of met him and had a have a relationship with him. But um, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna flip the roles here because now I'm gonna interview you. Now, <laughs> you traveled around the country in a van, kind of doing your own take on a blue highway highways or travels with Charlie or yeah. Yeah, I did. I spent four months on the road living out of my minivan, my soccer mom minivan. See, it sounds like fucking heaven. It, it was great. It was, uh, it was, we were coming out of COVID. It wasn't like we weren't in full effect, but it was definitely, there were still some places that were requiring masks and requiring vaccination stuff. So it was a weird time to be traveling around the country. Did but... you have a dog? No, I thought about it, but I didn't. I could Python. There wasn't enough space. <laughs> there was not, it would have, it would have been too much. But that was the first time I met you, and then I and came. I remember back. that. That's funny because I forgot about that until just now. Yeah, I remember it now. And so then I came back around, tried to give you my elevator pitch, which you cut off, <laughs> like not even a third of the way through. You're like, we're not hiring anybody. And then I went, and I was like, whatever, I'll, I'll check out the place because I like it. And uh, I was walking around, and this random guy came up to me. I don't know if you recall this or anything. But a random guy came up to me and started asking me questions, and I knew you were within earshot. So I thought, here's my interview. (laughs) And so I started pitching my voice over the bookshelves and answering very (laughs) in-depth, basic questions to this random guy before he finished it off with a weird question, and I just kind of turned around and walked away. It it gets worse, you know. If you sit in those front two seats upstairs, everybody thinks you're the person at the store. So we'll have – that's where, you know – the individuals off of cell block 39 roam in and it's yeah. cold and they sit down and people walk in and look at him and it's like so <laughs> yeah no hey where's the are you awake are you sober or yeah right who's yeah. the slumped figure in, in the front window <laughs> yeah but All yeah color character yeah yeah and so um i guess my my voice reached you and you stopped me on my way out and you're like, send me some of your stuff. Send me like an email or something and which you didn't respond to for a long time. And I walked back in here and said, Hey man. Yeah. <laughs> said, Hey man, uh, you ever going to get around to looking at that? And that's when you said, let's get coffee sometime. And then yep. the rest was history. We said, yeah. yeah. So to welcome aboard. Yeah. No, I'm later. proud to be here. Yeah. I'm proud to be on the ship, uh, sailing through the pit of Prosperos, but yeah, you are flying Dutchman, dude. <laughs> like you can never get off once you get on. <laughs> right, we're we're just we're powering through whatever mayhem comes our way. But I'm cracking up open yep. the. It's only a Pepsi, folks. It's only a Pepsi, folks. But as I've gotten to know you, the layers of your character continue to surprise and entertain. But. Um, I was kind of doing some reading up on you, just some research on you, yeah, yeah. And uh, I came across a fun little thing that your your political career started off with a punch. Uh-oh. <laughs> a punch to the jaw. That is true, to one of the people who are still our customers. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Many man. years later. The layers continue to, <laughs> to show their colors. But why don't you tell me that story? Because I've never heard that one. Uh, I, my, my main goal in high school 
was to not be known, to smoke as much weed as I possibly could and listen to as much Led Zeppelin as I possibly could. And then there was this young red-haired lady that just occupied an amazing amount of bandwidth in my psyche. That I was, <laughs> never could work up the nerve to deal with, but <laughs> she was there anyway. <laughs> and before school one day, my my old man was a was a very Goldwater Republican and a Reagan Republican. And in 77, which I'm, I'm trying to think, man, that's like, I, I don't know, maybe freshman year, maybe. can't remember, but somewhere around there. Um, my dad had been backing Reagan. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, I'm at home. I'm smoking my weed. I'm playing my guitar. I'm listening to a lot of Led Zeppelin. I'm hanging out with my friend Keith Mueller. And we're doing all of those things together. And uh, so... My, the Republican convention was here in Kansas City that year, and uh, Reagan got nominated. But my dad took me to that convention, which also Ralph Steadman happened to be at and oh, actually wow. drew pictures of that were shown in the Kansas City, Missouri Library a couple years ago. Would you look at and that? I took Riley to see that exhibit because like, you're going to see stuff that's not been seen in 30 years because it's been in a private collection and... <laughs> the definition of full circle. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, but so I come back from that, and Reagan had Reagan had lost, and uh, Ford was was nominated, and um, so we get home, and I still remember leaving to go to school. My dad stops his, stops me on the way out, and he goes, "Well, we're no longer Reagan people; we're Ford people." <laughs> <laughs> he put a button on me, <laughs> and. Uh, I, so I'm, I'm in my plaid shirt and long hair and dumpy middle young man. I don't do exercise form. Smoking in, as much weed as yeah, possible. Exactly. Listen to Zeppelin. Yeah. And then walking down the hall before class outside of, uh, um, there was a, I can't think of it, Taylor's, the Taylor's, Mr. and Mrs. Taylor. And I was going into science class first thing. And um, one of the characters in the school, Scooting Government, catches me in, in the hall and starts just starts in and goes, I hear you're, you, you know, Reagan lost and all of this stuff, and now you're going to do this, and, you know, we're Democrats here and stuff. He starts going off on all this stuff, and, and the circle circles me in the hallway before school, and this guy is literally maybe that much taller than me, you know, like mm-hmm. six inches, seven inches taller than me. He's a big guy. Smart, debate man, you know, good guy too. It just freaked me the fuck out. Right. And uh, kept poking, he's poking me. We do this, and we do this, and you do this, and we do this. And I didn't know what to do, so I roundhoused the motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> the shot heard around the right, world. Right in the middle of the hall. Wow. And sent a message to the rest of them. Well, it was strange because I went home and talked to my dad about it that night, and I go, How do we get a hold of Ford's team who had just selected? You know, the week before the convention, Bob Dole, the Kansas senator, to be his mm-hmm. vice president, so I could get a hold. So I started going door to door for Bob Dole and Jerry Ford. Wow. <laughs> and that was the beginning. That was the beginning of it uh-huh. as a volunteer. So I was pretty young. Man, those that sounds like a story that could be told nowadays. Was it? That's... You know what I mean? People make the wrong mistakes in understanding politics. They draw it as a line. They say you got the far left and you got the far right. And it's just wrong. It's a circle. Mm. And you can become so left you become right. And it usually starts happening somewhere around drug legalization. You become so right that it becomes left. And it, you mean, it starts being telling people how to live their lives very specifically, whether you're going to have gas stoves, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, of course, a very silly thing to say because nobody is proposing we get rid of gas stoves. But, right. you know, it makes a lovely TV commercial for people who only stand things in three-second increments. Right. But 
it's a circle, and it's mm-hmm. I mean, in the politics of opposition, because to get to fifty point zero zero one percent, you're always trying to absorb just a hint of the other guy's stuff to pull their people over, and they're trying to do the same to you. And over a period of years, that you move, you actually move around. Right. I mean, the Democrats have been conservative. I mean, they were the they were the Southern Republicans of today mm-hmm. back at a time. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, it, just the politics of opposition and the way the game's played. It becomes a little fluid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I saw that you had a great co- quote in the story that I was reading oh. about. Yeah, about how <laughs> you're you reading. Is this online? Everything's yes, online. Everything's Our online. Lives are online. Don't Google your name. Just kidding. <laughs> it's nothing bad, or at least I didn't go deep enough. But uh, not much. Yeah, I yeah. Most of those people. But there was a great quote you just were talking about um, how people forget that politicians aren't just a cookie like a uh, cardboard cutout and that they're actually uh, yeah they're real human beings yeah. i've got to hang around with a bunch of them way up close right so. which i feel like is a perfect segue into your political career although i am curious what did your pops think about you dropping out of high school and then enrolling uh my, my you know it's funny i have a child of my own and he's at that age and it's you know i learned something from my old man it was how hard it is and how important it is to figure out how how and when to let your kids go mm. and there's there gets to be i was just reading yesterday i tell my friend jesse cates from the sexy accident about because he's a dad too with a kid this age and we were i was reading the new margaret atwood collection of essays when she's she's got man that, that woman's witty and smart and fun mm-hmm. and uh but she she had she'd use the uh neither a borrower or a lender be in one of these essays about how what our roles are in later adult or raising later children mm. as they get to the end of their teens and how they, they don't, they're, we're, they're doing your fucking advice. What they want are your good wishes. Mm. <laughs> like, we hope you succeed, man. I'm here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you're done giving people advice. And my old man figured that stuff out and as very conservative as he was. And my pop was born in 1913. Mm. So he was way old. Right. You know, and we weren't, you know, we weren't out playing football and catch or anything. So, right. And he'd figured out how to let it go. And I've, I've now figured out, little teary, uh-huh. uh, just what that probably meant uh-huh. and how hard it is sometimes. So. Right. And, and how important it was because I went. Yeah. But then you go from drop high school dropout to taking the most hours you can possibly take at KU, right? I did, yeah. When I went to college, I dropped out at KU and then took my GED with my best friend named Mike. I won't give you his last name these days because you could probably find him online too. But uh, yeah. <laughs> and we both we both was like you know the year the year before I quit I had told myself I was going to get stoned every single day of class which I succeeded in. <laughs> Check <laughs> and uh, that and that over that summer I was like yeah, well that isn't bringing me exactly the fun I thought it was going to be you know and stuff and not that there wasn't moments of fun but if I can remember them but. There was, I, I just thought as soon as like I'm done with that, and I came back, and then everybody's like going, "Come on, man, can you give me a bound bag? Can you give me this?" And it just, it was just really hard, and I wasn't enjoying anything anyway. It wasn't getting through to me, and yeah, you know, my my good friend was one of the smartest men I've ever known. And guilt by association, I wasn't the dumbest guy I've ever known. And when we just said, "I'm done," and we did it, and you know, we worked for four or five months, and then took our GED and went to KU. And when you went to KU, and I did. Enrollment happened in Allen or in, in Hoke Auditorium. You'd come down to these long lines, and everything was on these little cards, the, the dangling Chad cards. 
Okay. That means nothing to me. I know. That's how you used to <laughs> vote. You had a punch card, and they'd run them through a machine that would identify the holes punched out in the thing. And, okay. But anyway, so I go down there, and they're like, well, have you taken your ACT? And I go, uh, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, well, you got what you got? I don't know. He's like, can I look at Well, your name isn't in here. Did you apply? You know, I was like, no. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I should be. And it's like some guy pulls some card up and punches some holes and hands it to me so I could go to KU. Wow. <laughs> I didn't ACT. I didn't do nothing. You never saw that guy again? Never saw him again. It was just somebody, some kid, only a kid, is probably either a grad student or a young woman or uh-huh. man who was teaching or a teacher assistant or somebody. I'm guessing. I don't know. Yeah. Like I said, things are a little foggy <laughs> in the depths of time. Right. But no, they they we got enrolled, and my buddy's like I said, he's a really smart bastard, and uh, he was taking some really tough stuff, and so I took some really tough stuff, and I took like twenty one hours, and uh, they they were really tough. None of them were like less than 600 level. And that was the best level of grades I ever got in college. And I never did it again. (laughs) And then you dropped out that semester? No, I went about a year or so. Okay. But, you know, it was... I and a couple guys, again, we were, we were pretty smart guys. I was one of the first guys in years, I mean, maybe 30 or 40, that was accepted in the Honors English Club and then the Honors History Club, Professor K, who is a Dante scholar and just a great man, mm-hmm. do wonderful parties in which he didn't pay any attention to undergraduates drinking out of the jugs of wine. But <laughs> anyway... <laughs> 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 like real animal house stuff. It was kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that, that's me, not them. them uh-huh. I don't want to besmirch the folks that it were ain't there. ain't over until we say it's over. <laughs> but, you know, we, we got a long way, but it was like I didn't have, I didn't do anything. All I did was do the smart stuff, and mm. it wasn't very fun. And then it, I was like, yeah, this ain't for me, and I quit. Right. And then that sent you into a little bit of a music career. Yeah, I quit. I went and I moved on to the plaza with, a couple of buddies I'd known from church. <laughs> <laughs> were you practicing? Very. Oh, so, wow. Oh, yeah. But we were the honor. Hot off the presses. Yeah, you don't want to even know this stuff. It was, oh, God, this is going to get out on radio. <laughs> we oh, yeah. were the crew that would go to the Pentecostal church and get up when they were speaking in tongues and, like, recite shit in Latin and wait for how they interpreted it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> you better hope there's not footage of that on the Internet because I will find it. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was full faith church of love way out on like off a of Flum and Shawnee. But, wow. oh, my God, the people we knew. Some of them were like from Calvary Bible College back then, which was a very strict. <laughs> but, but, I mean, a lot of people get their music kicks started in church. Yeah, well, yeah. there's a reason for yeah. it. I mean, it's... I don't. I'm not. Den, I'm not here to denigrate people's experience, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what the fuck it means in the universe and right. the transcendent and stuff. But you know, one of my favorite Bible stories is that David, you know, King Saul, would get really angry because he's king of the Jews, which would make anybody angry sometimes. Just ask Netanyahu. You know, I mean, <laughs> it can make you get <laughs> and and. Uh, He'd get really pissed off, and somebody's like going, man, you just need to chill out and listen to some tunes. <laughs> and I know this kid who can play a mean liar. <laughs> and they go and yank David out of being a shepherd and make him play for Saul. And he, right. when he plays, Saul would chill and get copacetic. Uh-huh. So tunes, tunes and approaching the transcendent are, wow. are a big deal, actually. And that's your favorite story of the Bible? That's my favorite. That's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, that's all right. Cool. Paraphrase. It's like, yeah. it's like the new... Bible, except the new, new, new uh-huh. Bible. It's an interpretation of an interpretation of an interpretation. Right. 
course. So why don't you run through White Claw? <laughs> yeah, run through White Claw here. Cheers to that. Sponsor us if you're thinking about it. Please sponsor. <laughs> but yeah, you were running tech for a little bit on like a band, or were you playing? You were. No, it, it was at a Bruce Coburn concert who's coming up in February. I'm going to go see him. He's 80 at Lawrence. Um, one he's one more Junos, which is the Canadian version of the Grammy, mm -hmm. than anybody in history. He's like fifteen or sixteen or something like that. And he was one of the first guys that called into question my guy, which was Reagan. Mm -hmm. And I voted for Reagan in eighty. It was the first time I got to cast a ballot. Right. And was Reagan, and I take it back. <laughs> wow. I take it back if I could. <laughs> it, the damage is done. Well, it is done. <laughs> but. Uh, there's a lot of things we can take back. You can't, but yeah, I mean, anyway, I don't know where I was going. That was something to do with Bruce Coburn. Mm -hmm. Oh well. Well, you, what you were? Were you in oh, a band? I had had my own band. Yeah. Not my own band. I'd been a sound man for a band, and then half the band quit, and so mm -hmm. I started playing guitar and keyboards for the bass and keyboards, and then we did that. And during that time, my roommates, we got them know. Uh, it was at a Bruce Coburn concert. I got to meet Doug Pinnock from King's X and, mm -hmm. you know, ran around the universe with them pretty significantly. Right. And I don't get that's it's all there's going to be said about that. OK, sounds good, <laughs> because we still got a ways to go, because then it starts getting wild where somehow you have your time overseas <laughs> <laughs> where you work for uh, a very famous lady. I mean, would yeah. do you want to? Go into that? Before we do this, you know, my, uh -huh. my dad was a good Southern boy from Missouri, uh -huh. and his mom, who hated the South, uh, they, they lived in outside of Chillicothe in a little town called Bosworth, and this was back when Jesse James and the fuckers were fucking around on behalf of the South and stuff, mm -hmm. and she hated them, but they'd come across her property, mm -hmm. and she'd always make sure there was food down over the hill, <laughs> all right? So they wouldn't come up to the house. Okay. And a loaf of bread, some apples, a tater, you uh -huh. know, or something like that. And so as the James boys were coming back and the Youngers, which, you know, they're, there's a Judge Younger out in like Lone Jack or something like that or Lamar somewhere in that South Pleasant Hill south of Kansas City. But, you know, Cole Younger and Jesse James, who's up in Kearney, they'd come tracking through my family's a long time ago. Guys. Uh, we're talking a long time ago. Right. This has got 100 plus years type thing. But... Anyway, it's uh, and they grab a couple snacks before yeah, they Yeah, she didn't want them to come up to the house, so she'd leave food way down over the hill at some place, you uh -huh. know, so they passed under the, the rock, yeah, over the hill, yeah. But uh, and again, I don't have any idea, I don't remember where that goes. This is probably getting old, uh huh. Well, I mean, that's a crazy tidbit of information <laughs> that I'm learning for the first time, but um, do you want to go into the overseas? What you did? Oh, I was gonna say, you know, my old man was 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 more Southern than he should have been. Mm. And uh, he shouldn't, should have been. I might tell him what he was supposed to do, but uh, in his time and place. But I still remember I brought Doug Pinnock, the lead, sing, lead singer and bassist for King's X, back to our house. Mm. <laughs> he was the first black person that had ever been in our house. <laughs> and, you know, Doug's, you know, 6'4", something like that, 6'3". But back then he had an orange mohawk that was a good four inches taller than him. And he had just an amazing amount of hardware punched through him and stuff. And... My dad was a good guy. He didn't say jack crap, and that, which again Not even of the time yeah. and stuff was probably you accept you accept the graces that are extended uh -huh. 
given the context. Oh, I mean, I feel like you have been writing that line for some time now. Yeah. Um, that might be just your your life's uh, through line right there. It's possible. What well, did you live in it? I always I tell my friends, again, Jesse, is that, you know, I never want to be on fire, but I love coming home smelling like smoke. Oh, that's a good line. <laughs> that's where all the shit's happening. You know, I'm, right. I want to go out and watch the shit happening. I don't want to do it. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. You just want to be an observer. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I write stories. Let me see this stuff. Exactly. I want to put some stuff in, some stuff can come out. Exactly. One sec. I have been having this intrusive thought run through my head that I never hit record on that camera, but I'm pretty sure I did. So. <laughs> it's all right. All right, we're on. we're on Hollywood. Here yeah, we come. There we go. <laughs> we're on the way to fucking golden riches. Um, all right. So you're Woo. pushing around. So after I did the rock or did rock and roll for yes. a couple three years, we're in bars. You're playing bars, and it's funny that in like the early '80s, you know, you could play four and five nights. We had five guys in the band playing music, and we had one other guy named Dave Hartung who's down in Texas these days. Uh, working in a church, <laughs> but uh, and, and for the symphony and everything else in Houston. Okay. But uh, we would uh, I'm sitting there one night, and it's like, you know, the girls are pretty and thing. That's good. It's a fun life, you know. You could do some shit. You're hanging out. You're not at home. You're traveling. So the gypsy in you is doing good. And as I am, and it's like, and this is back before they made it so you can't smoke in bars, but it's like, I just smoked seven packs of cigarettes playing cheap trick songs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore either. So, I mean, that's now you're looking at, I didn't want to do school and I didn't want to do this. And, and I'm, again, I'm hanging out with my buddies. We're living on the plaza. And then uh, one of them's like, I had a godfather. He was running, he had run for Congress in Kansas when they lost a congressional seat which they do about every 10 years in Kansas because there gets to be, can you imagine, less people. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> but uh, yeah, another quick aside, you know, people forget this, that Kansas was the first state in the nation to have abortion rights. Mm. See, I didn't even know that. Yeah, it used to be, Kansas came in as part of the compact about slave state and free state. So right. it came in as free. We came in... We were one of the first states, and now, I mean, look at us, look at Kansas now. I can't say us, because as soon as I turned 18, I got the fuck out of there and moved to Missouri, which ain't any better, but we got better rivers and trees and yeah, yeah, cities yeah. Yeah, and yeah, of bars and stuff, of course. other than the free state. And, uh, <laughs> but, and then you, you were asking it, so, you know, it's like, I, the second thing I come in, it's like, I just don't want to do this anymore. I'm done. And I'm in the band with a guy named Monty Colvin, Galen Chris Slagle, some really good fucking people. Monty's brother, not brother, his cousin was like Dee Dee Ramone. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> and Dee Dee was from Nevada, Missouri. His real name was Doug Colvin. <laughs> so much more new information you're hitting me <laughs> with. Monty and I, was our band had this huge deal. There was like five of us. And three of us wanted to be Bruce Springsteen. And the other three of us wanted to be Cheap Trick. <laughs> the other two of us wanted to be Cheap Trick. And so Monty and I are Cheap Trick and everybody else. In this. So on top of having the breathe smoke, there's this internal sort of... You know, we don't know who the fuck we are. We can't find the groove. And I mean, again, you're, you're hauling around, you know, 17 foot trailers full of quarter of a million dollars worth of gear back in 1982, you mm -hmm. know, and just like, all over the country. Yeah. Yeah. Now, played all the way from Texas to Canada. Wow. <laughs> uh, we're in Canada. 
I didn't get into Canada. Uh, to Canada. Oh, to Canada. <laughs> so, they stopped you right at the border. Yeah, exactly. Not you coming you in here. <laughs> Not you. <laughs> Picked you right out of the crowd. See, I get done in my, at that point, my godfather, a guy named Kent Hodges, was running for the congressional seat. And he's about 10 years older than me. And we, I'd sneak out of Lawrence, got to his farm down in Ottawa and shoot guns and do the stuff you do in farms. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, you, know, you don't know what the hell you want to do with your life. He goes... Why don't you come to D.C. with me? <laughs> and he had been page of the U.S. Senate under the patronage of Dole. And I've already had some relationship with Dole. And so we get up. Oh, God, I'm going to tell you a couple of fun stories here. Right. I don't think you've I'm heard. In. No. <laughs> uh, Kent's, Kent is page of the store. So I'm up on the Senate up there. And uh, I'm up in the gallery. And <laughs> I'm standing up there with John Tower, who died. He was one of the U.S. He was a senator. He was a U.S. negotiator for the START treaties, I believe, if my memory serves me. But Strom Thurmond comes walking. Actually, we're right up the top. We were we were walking down the hallway, and you hear this. You hear somebody up front go, ah! <laughs> and then about two minutes later, ah! <laughs> and I'm walking with Tower and my, my godfather, and and Tower he goes, Strom Thurmond, when that son of a bitch dies, they're gonna have to beat his pecker down with a stick. <laughs> Oh, no way. So that's <laughs> He's what... pinching butts yeah. walking down the hall. Dirty old Strom Thurmond who brought the South oh. to the return, helped shift the Republicans from being the party of Lincoln to the party of anti-Lincoln. Uh-huh. And Strom is very seminal in that. And that same trip, he we end up in Strom Thurmond's office. And Strom Thurmond, it's where I first met Maker's Mark. <laughs> so we're in Strom Thurmond's office. And he's like... He goes, so I'm going to have to teach you how to make a mint julep. <laughs> he goes, first you get a glass. <laughs> he goes, and you fill it with shaved ice. You don't want none of that crunchy ice. You want shaved ice. And he, before he did, he goes, first you bruise a mint leaf. Then you get a glass, or you get a glass, you bruise the mint leaf, you put it in the bottom, and you fill it with shaved ice, none of that other ice. You put another mint leaf on the top of it, bruise it, bruise it, so the mint gets in there, and the oil gets in there. And he goes, then you fill that goddamn thing up with Maker's Mark. Now, that's a mint julep. <laughs> <laughs> He drinks it with shaved ice. She's <laughs> <laughs> like Bond. Okay. All right. But, but anyways, that was an interesting thing. So my godfather, he's like, he goes, I have a contact. He goes, you'll figure out your stuff. You know, why don't you go to fucking Indian Calcutta and work for Mother Teresa for a summer and just get in, to get your arms deep in it and go. And so I'm deciding to go and my friend Murphy Boyle and a good Irish boy mm-hmm. <laughs> skate punk buddy blood brother all the way to death right he's <laughs> and, surrounded by him and uh, he we're living on the plaza and uh, Murph comes in and goes my girlfriend's going to England she's going she bit Jewel and they had an uh, interchange with Grantham College out there Harlexton at Grantham which by the way Margaret Thatcher was from and Billy Idol and mm. Isaac Newton right not Isaac Newton sir uh, yeah, the gravity guy, the yeah, apple yeah. falling at his head. Sir Isaac Newton, Newton yeah. yeah. So they're, they're all from Grantham. But wow. he's like going, I'm going over here because Shanna's over there, and this is yours and my last time till we all get old and have children. Uh-huh. And he goes, so you get Mother Teresa or you're going to come drink with me? <laughs> we know which one you <laughs> which chose. Which one I chose. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I ended up going to London. Murph's already over there. You have nothing lined up. It's nothing. Just... I have a return ticket that's open ended and three hundred bucks. Wow! So I that's get there. A, Murph's been on the ground for about three weeks already, and the British version of the program we went to was called Bunac, the British University's North America Club, and we go in and 
you get an orientation. Because if you'd taken a full load towards college, you were guaranteed a green card the semester before. If you'd taken a full load towards college, you were guaranteed a green card for six months. Mm-hmm. And so I also had a green card. So, okay. And That's I nice. land, and Murph's already been there. And so we get out of the orientation. We meet this guy named Andrew Upton. who's he's, he's got a law firm now in Boston with its own little hat. His name's on it. He just sent me one for Christmas. I loved it. <laughs> hey, we should have put it out. <laughs> I should have. Yeah. But uh, the, he and I and Murph pooled all of our money, and we rented an apartment <laughs> in downtown London. I mean downtown, north of Hyde Park. Eight blocks, maybe. How was, that? How was that neighborhood during that time? It was, oh, dude, it was expensive. Oh, really? We had five rooms and a living room. And so we put 11 other people in the apartment. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, well, that, <laughs> we, that makes it affordable. <laughs> the Americans have arrived. That <laughs> we had rented. And there's a lot of stories there, some of which I'm not going to tell because they might still not be beyond uh, statute of limitations. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Don't get me in trouble. <laughs> but worry about me, not you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so we rent this place. I go and apply for three jobs. I get all three of them. So I end up working at a place called 47 Park Street, which is a hotel a block from the U.S. Embassy. And uh, the hotel is the hotel that has Le Gavroche, where the Rothschilds restaurant, the Rothschilds were the family cooks for the, for the I'm sorry, that's not crude, the the cooks are Albert Roux and his brother, and they were the cooks for the Rothschilds family for decades and decades and decades, their family was. Wow. It's the only Michelin-rated starred hotel in England at this time, I think. And uh, it's, it's you know, in Le Gavroche, you're talking about uh, the Victor Hugo's, you know, um, what's, what's the big one that they, Le Miserable. Ah, there and we so go. Le Gavroche is a character from Le Miserable. He's the street urchin. Mm-hmm. But this, the best restaurant in London at this time is called the street urchin. It's run by the Rothschilds family cooks. Right. It's in this hotel that I'm, I'm working at. So I'm, you know, I'm just staff, you know, I'm washing whiteboard, vacuuming and carrying crap around and stuff. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's where I, I Ended up working there for quite a while. So that was your first gig before you started getting into politics? Well, I'm working there, and my roommate, my roommate Andrew, was working for Neil Kinnock, and he's a lot more buttoned-down individual than I am and does things a little bit more by the book. Hence, he's got, like, degrees and law firms and stuff, and I got a bookstore. (laughs) But uh, he he was working for Neil Kinnock, and he and Murph were were, um, doing night jobs tending bar at the Barbican, <laughs> which was like this giant concrete hellhole in the center of London that was like a skyscraper. It was the only thing like it. Uh-huh. It was like the Crown Center, except industrial, made out of concrete. It was oh, a lovely. compound. It was huge. But you had great plays at this place. You know, I met Jeremy Irons there. You met, you meet, pe- it's London. It's like New York. You yeah. LA. You meet people. They're yeah. just there. <laughs> yeah, right. You just and, bump uh, into people. But, so they're working there, and he kept dogging. And I was like, so I tried to go to work for a guy named um, 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 David Owens. He was MP, and he was, there were like four parties there at this time. There, there, was, the, there was Labor, there was the Tories, and then there were two in the middle. There were the Liberals and then the Social Democrats. And under Owen, they had united the Liberal and the Social Democrats into the SDP, the Social Democratic something or another, and he was their head. And I wanted to work for him. I mean, because back then, it's, England was very much like now, though. 
the left was way left and the right was way right and there was nothing in the middle and David was trying to do this thing in the middle. He almost pulled it off, but he wouldn't hire me because I was an American. Uh. <laughs> you know? And so I'm like bitching and bitching and bitching at the hotel. And one of the people, I mean, Bradford, I think it was Bradford who was the, the manager of the hotel at that time. He, uh, he goes, he goes, you're from America. You're from Kansas City. He goes, right over there is the U.S. Embassy. You can see it out the front door. He goes, the U.S. Ambassador to England is from Kansas City. <laughs> right, right. Of course he is. Because why wouldn't he be? Charlie Price. Charlie Price. <laughs> and uh, he's like, just go tell him you're from Kansas City. He'll see you. You know, it's like, uh. sure, sure, sure. So I went over one day and I tell him and I get to go see Charlie Price. <laughs> right. And it's like, I really just want to experience a parliamentary governmental system up close and personal. But, you know, I'd rather work for David Owen, but he ain't going to do And David Owen went on to be the negotiator that helped resolve the Serbian-Croat war. Oh, really? I <laughs> yeah. didn't know that. So Owen went on to do stuff. He didn't get to be prime minister, but he got, he still did some really important things. But uh, So I get to go see go, go see Charlie, and Charlie's, I'm telling him my deal, and he's like, he goes, well, here's this guy's name. He goes, he goes, he's the organizer for MP Green and MP Peter Brook. He goes, and over here it's different. You work for the team. And he goes, to make it really who you're working for, you work for the team, and the team's a lot stronger, and then the team, if the team wins, the team selects who's in power. Okay, you elect the team, and then the team chooses their best players to be in power, kind of. It was his rough explanation of this. We probably need to go let yeah, this Yeah, I'm going to let this guy out. Hey. Pause on that. We're coming to get you. Had to take care of very important business. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Where were we? And we were talking about the politics of this thing. Right. So Charlie sent me, gave me a note and introduced, sent me an introduction to the guy who was running field operations for Wheeler. I think his name was John Wheeler, MP John Wheeler, and then Peter Brook, who represented like Bond Street, where all the good clothes are uh -huh. made, and Savile Row and everything, right down in Mayfair. And so I started volunteering for them. And then, uh, like I said, through that, I got to meet all kinds of people, and I was moderately adept mm -hmm. at doing organizational stuff. And I kind of was teaching, I was working, I was overseeing, we would send teams of college-age students into bars to argue politics, and we'd train them how to argue politics and how to fold and how not to fold and where to fold and where not to fold in a bar argument. Really? <laughs> yeah. And That's it was weird. well, and back then, and I'm, I'm, you know, again, it's a long time, and I may get some of the details wrong, but you know, you can't. It was illegal to campaign until Parliament was dissolved, uh -huh. and once you got elected, they couldn't dissolve Parliament for two or three years, and the most you could go was five years before it had to be dissolved, uh -huh. and then the party in power got to kind of choose between three and five years when it was the most advantageous to dissolve Parliament, and once Parliament was dissolved, you had five fucking weeks, and the election was over. So you couldn't campaign before the five weeks. And so it's all within five, five weeks. Five weeks. So it's just an intense whirlwind. Yeah. And of, of course, there's all kinds of shit you're doing yeah. that's you're doing, but it ain't 
hey, vote for me. It yeah, was very, yeah. it was a weird scenario, and there was limits on direct mail access to individuals. You actually had to opt in, and people didn't buy political ads. Every major established party was given a one-hour chunk once a week for five weeks, huh. and it was the only thing on all of the channels. <laughs> Again, if I'm remembering this correctly, it's a long time ago now. Mm-hmm. But it was the only thing on the major channels for five weeks for that one hour stretch during prime time. And so the parties would bring in, the the, the labor party would get like John Cleese on uh-huh. and he would like lead some kind of fucking circus, you know, that was, uh-huh. <laughs> so you were trying to get people to watch and hear your shtick. Yeah. So you, it was a lot more hand to hand and personal contact. And I was helping train and oversee the teams we ran through bars to felic- or facilitate discussion. Okay, interesting. But, and then how we did, won? Yeah, right. <laughs> we won. It was the last election. Thatcher won, uh-huh. and it was she won. Obviously, you won it, and they. She lost. If I remember that correctly, too, she lost by having her party give her a vote of no confidence. Not she didn't lose the election. Mm. So you have to be commissioner. You have to be elected to your district, and then the part, the team that gets elected and wins the most has to choose you to be the person to run. Okay, stuff. Gotcha. So and Margaret Thatcher was won. yeah right because so. I don't know if that was lost in the shuffle. We are talking about Thatcher, Mar- <laughs> <the> Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> when it was funny because we, so Andrew and I and Murph would be over at the South African Embassy, which is right off of Trafalgar Square, which is like five, six, seven blocks away from Ten Downing Street. Uh-huh. <laughs> so Thatcher's there, and we still have apartheid, and so we're over there with all the people partying and picketing the South African Embassy during the day, <laughs> and it's like. Oh, I gotta go to work. <laughs> Over in Margaret Thatcher's office of all people. And I remember one time in a car ride with you, you told me you're making no, 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 no. no, okay. no. Okay. Yeah. okay. There's some you. stories that just don't get to be told. All right, that's so they're true between, anyway. Okay, that stays between us. That right. stays between us. Um, I mean, she came to Missouri a couple times after she had retired, and I was at that point working with Senator Kit Bond and got a great opportunity to drive her around wow. a little bit. And it's one of my favorite stories out of that is we're in Branson, Missouri, where Pete Hershend, who was one of the most significant people in Branson and the development of Branson, we've, we've brought in, it's a two point fun story, but so we've, so Thatcher's down there. I'm, I'm technically working with Kit though. I'm getting ready to peel off and go to work for John or John Ashcroft. And I'm behind them. And it's it's Thatcher and Ashcroft are sitting in front of him. Pete Hershen's up here. And Pete Hershen was a really respectable kind of old school Republican. He was like, he wanted to accomplish things, not destroy things. Mm-hmm. And he was a big pro-education guy. And he's introducing Thatcher in front of 10,000 people or something out here in Branson. And he's and, and this woman, he's like, this woman embodies compromise and stuff. And I start, <laughs> Margaret leans over to Ashcroft right there, like right in front of me. And she goes, compromise. That's what you're left with in the absence of leadership. Wow. <laughs> Overheard, <laughs> like right in front of me, shunkunk, and it was like just an aside, you know. It uh, was like this great scenario, but wow. But and Pete's kid, Chris, and I haven't talked to Chris in years, man. And that Chris and I would get Ashcroft riding around outstate Missouri, and his Chris's giant fucking Yukon, listening to Lyle Lovett. 
Mm-hmm. And we converted Ashcroft to listening to Lyle Lovett because that song about the bird at church that flies down and ate the food in the middle of the sermon, or the pastor eats the bird in the middle of the sermon because he's preaching too long, <laughs> got hungry. Oh my God. <laughs> and Ashcroft's like, that's, that's a good song. <laughs> so somehow, where do you go from, so you go from Margaret Th- Thatcher over to Ashcroft. Well, I was, it's a weird, so I, was, so I was, again, working in 47 Park Street. And Canary Wharf had the top two things, and they're redeveloping the London Docklands. There are a couple of very rich men out of Canada, if I remember correctly. But they had like the top three floors of the hotel. And the, who's, who is staying at this hotel? Um, uh, Bob Geldof is there. And I'm, I'm doing room service, and I end up taking care of a lot of people because if they're Americans, I'm the only American in the hotel. So I got to take care of them. But not that Geldof was an American, but I'm taking care of Geldof and walk in and. There, there was a little bit of affair going on, and it may not have been with Bob, but it may have been with his wife and somebody else. But anyway. <laughs> I didn't hear anything. <laughs> but, but this, and Chief Nielsen Bossi out of Africa was there, and I'd done this thing where I'd redesigned his mini. He'd had all of the fucking furniture moved out of the room <laughs> and brought in, like, very floor-level seating, not Western furniture. And, okay. And so he's in there, but I'd done his thing where his mini bar was only full of the most expensive shit. So everything he'd ordered <laughs> was like $700. <laughs> Why? Just, just as a, like a prank or? No, because. Just because. Why wouldn't make, you do that? Yeah, he doesn't care. He's the chief of fucking. <laughs> chief Nielsen Bossy, you know? Right, right. But one of the guys that stayed in the hotel was Charlton Heston, and he was shooting what was performing a man for all seasons at the Savoy and that was the only American I got to take care of him he was there a long time months and months and months and months and that boy could drink uh-huh. he threw good parties and he could drink <laughs> and uh wait who's this Charlton Heston Charlton Heston okay. and uh so at the end of his time he's getting ready to wrap it up you know Ted Turner you can still find the the performance on you know Turner broadcast because they filmed it and he's like you know, he calls me and he's like, what do you want? You know, do you want, you know, I can take you and your friends. I'm doing this play. I can get you front row seats, you know, for everybody. You know, get, take 20 of your friends. Let's go to this thing. And I asked him for a letter of introduction to Bob Dole, who was getting ready to run for president in 87, going into 88. Mm-hmm. So he gave me that. And then he gave us, he took our friends to the play anyway. And then on a cruise up and down the Thames one night drinking on the hotel with wow. his crew. But anyway. That's a visual. That's... So I come back and I... Give, I, I turned in my, I applied, made my application, and I turned in my my letter from Charlton and stuff, and I get this call. I have to go down to this law office down here in Kansas City, and I meet a guy named Ron Blunt, whose brother was the secretary of the state of Missouri, Roy Blunt, at that time. And uh, about 20 minutes into the interview, I realized that I'm applying for the job of the boss of the job I thought I was applying for. <laughs> and I just stopped the interview. <laughs> it's like, this is the scenario. And he goes, well, you think you can do it? And I was like, Probably. <laughs> so I got to be field rep for Dole in northern Missouri from that interview. And then following that, I went on to work for his brother when he ran for governor against Webster. And uh, we ended up helping put Mr. Webster in fucking jail. <laughs> Fucker belonged there. Uh-huh. But then, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I've known... I worked for Roy. I worked for his son when he was Secretary of State. I was uh-huh. the Deputy Secretary. I called it. I made him call me um, Republican Direct State Director of Elections because the uh-huh. Secretary is a political position, and I didn't want a political position. I wanted to run elections. Right. But so I did that for a little bit, and then the Democrats killed 
in Missouri, the most progressive election reform bill coming out of 2000 in the nation. Mm. You know, many days of early voting in Missouri established third party criteria that was allowed the Greens <laughs> to be on ballot and you had yeah. 30 par parties you could be. D's killed it because they didn't want a Republican secretary of state under the name of Blunt knowing he was going to run for governor to be uh -huh. able to claim good government. So they killed it. And the day they killed it, I quit. Yeah. That was your baby, that, that... That law. I yeah. spent a lot of time helping design that law. Mm -hmm. Guys like Paul DiGregorio and every secretary of state in the state, not secretary, county clerk in the state of Missouri, not everyone, but a chunk mm -hmm. of them, doing dil good due diligence to perform good election reform. And the D's killed it. Yeah. Because they didn't want Matt to be governor and be able to run on good government. Right. And get the credit for that. Yeah. 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 And when that happened, I walked off and I've never been back. Yep. And so <laughs> you quit and what? You're now looking down a history of political work and a open future. And what are you thinking? Oh, dude. I keep thinking, going, God, I can get back in here. And I'm like, going, I'm 61 years old. I can't do this crap. <laughs> kill you, man. I'm serious. It's so much work. I built the Republican Party because at that time you'd had Kit. It was the youngest governor in the history of the country, I believe that's true, until Bill Clinton became the youngest governor in the history of the country. And Kit was, many people had been eyeing Kit as being, and I spent some years working for Kit on a couple of elections, more than a couple, but they, they were looking at him as a presidential prospect being mm -hmm. so young, and he'd already been auditor, and, you know, he's governor, and then Ashcroft comes up as auditor, then attorney general, and it's, Missouri's had, had, had some decent people, and, you know, all of this stuff I'm saying is that John Ashcroft is a man of fucking integrity. <laughs> you know, you may not believe what he says. He believes it, and it ain't. It isn't about uh, which way is the wind blowing. Right. It's like this is what I think. Now, are people going to listen to what I'm thinking, or do we have to talk about something else? Mm -hmm. That's. But he, he was a man of integrity and a decent man. So I still think he was a decent man. Mm -hmm. uh, a touch puckered. Yeah. <laughs> a bit rigid. <laughs> Ashcroft. But, but fucking high, high IQ and a person of integrity. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of sad now that we are like looking back and being, man, I wish we would have someone like that yeah. in the, in the well, field take it. playing talking, the game. Talking yeah. to my buddies, like going, well, I could live with Romney. He's a bit of a douchebag, but yeah. he's got some sense of the country as country right. you know not just let's rape and pillage woohoo yeah and <laughs> build at least, us a golden calf and sacrifice our children to it yeah and at least he kind of believes in what he's saying which is yeah yeah but um so yeah you come out of that like whirlwind of a political career which sent you all over the place and it was a good you, time brother. It, was <laughs> it was great you got to see shit you never who gets to see this if you're a poor man yeah i mean who gets to sail down the thames drinking Whatever yeah, you're with, drinking. With Charlton fucking Heston. Yeah, exactly. Get your niece. <laughs> picture with him and with Gingrich in Springfield, Missouri. And Gingrich gave a great fucking speech. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Go figure. I mean, the man had a, something of an acute mind. You can't... I mean, D.C.'s a whole group of people that were the number one or number two in their class mm -hmm. from the whole country. All of them. <laughs> wow. And they're really smart. I'm not talking about their moralities, their deeds, but most of them are... But their intelligence. Yeah, and they, they were handed things as young people that most of us don't get to see. Mm -hmm. I got fortunate just by sheer fucking luck. 
in a little bit of figured play a little bit when I was on my feet, you know. Yeah. I can you know, catch a glimpse. Yeah. yeah. And get around and make, make things plan out. Uh-huh. But I don't know. You do wish it and it's the world is a much, much, much worse place than it used to be uh-huh. because of those fuckers now. Right. But what string of insanity did you catch that inspired you to open up this place? <laughs> uh, my original partner is a guy named John Condra. And I knew him from politics because he had been Jim Talent, who was the Republican leader in the House. I believe it was the House, not the Senate. He was, he was his AA. And I'd met him by trying to pick up on his girlfriend <laughs> at a party in Jeff City one night. And... Uh, but we became really good friends, and we were just really good friends for years. And we both came back here, and we've been roommates on the plaza. And I'm still doing politics. I'm running up to Iowa to do presidential shit for Ashcroft. He's John's more getting his liter or his history degree at UMKC, Civil War specialties and stuff. And again, one of the smartest, bookiest men I've ever known. And yeah, John is. We're sitting at Gahoolies, which is diagonal for right from where we're sitting here one afternoon, and we're drinking. And we discovered this. I had discovered this neighborhood about two years before that because of De Bronx Pizza, mm. and that was just a great. So we're sitting in Gahoolies drinking, and he's like, "You know, fuck this shit, man. Fuck this shit. What do we What do we do to get our souls back, man? Let's open a bookstore." So we were both book guys, and you know, we have a great library in our house, and. Uh, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's great. I'm t- I got to leave Monday morning. I'm going to go. I got to be up in Iowa. You know, where Ashcroft's running for president. I'm handling Iowa for him. And so I bug out. And I get back about two weeks later, and we'd been living in the Brookside. He goes, well, I did a thing. It's like, what did you do? And he's like, well, I bought 6,000 books. They're in the back room. He bought them first, 6,000? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh. <laughs> Where do you even store those? We had a big house. Okay. <laughs> had a lot of guns in it and, uh, and a lot anyway, of books. And a lot of books. But uh, Paul Fredrocks, the DJ, was living there with us. KY 102 DJ was living with us at this point. And, That's and, uh, what a time. Yeah, it was crazy. And we, so we was like, okay, uh, what are we going to do? Yeah, we got to put them somewhere. <laughs> and so we started, we did our low dollar R&D processes we figured out what five neighborhoods we kind of would like to maybe do a bookstore in and each one of us did like an hour we did five days and we each one of us did an hour a day we breakfast lunch dinner and we literally sat outside with a little flip pad tabbing people walking by Uh, that was our r&d was foot was foot traffic Uh you have to have foot traffic you know and and it had come down to here and over by the uptown theater where larry sells has his stuff and Larry was very excited, and uh, we decided that the clientele was better here than there, and so we made we wanted a guy named Damon Abnos, and his brother, the Western Auto Building, Abdiana Furniture. It's his mm-hmm. brother. His other brother is a good construction guy, but Damon's specialty was taking owner-operated properties that were hard to make work, and making them work, and he'd find the right tenants and stuff, and. So we'd talk to him. I think Damon's still around. I saw him a few years ago. But, uh, he looks like an Emon now. <laughs> I was giving him some shit about that. But anyway, <laughs> but he's, he, again, he, he, he walks us through and we're like, well, we wanted the building that's now Chipotle. It had been a tattoo shop. Mm. And he's like, you can't have that because he'd already inked a national contract because he bought everything from Gahoolies to Starbucks. Okay. And he'd already inked the deal to put a national tenant 
in there, which was Chipotle. Uh-huh. And uh, so, well, we went the other place over here, and it was a lady named the Nutty Girl whose husband actually was our attorney for a bit. But uh, he uh, he's like, well, I already got that one rented. What you need is this place. <laughs> and it was the old 1717, which is now a barbershop, which incidentally was a barbershop before we got it. <laughs> it was run by a guy named Vern. Okay. <laughs> and, and Vern, he, he had already told Vern this stuff. And, and that, that, that piece of property, that whole thing is issues because if you have restaurants, you actually have to have so many parking spaces equal to how many people you can sit. So you have very limited on what you can do. And that whole thing was filled up with Chipotle coming in, what's her face there. Back then, what's now Room 39 was a coffee shop called Muddy's, but it had some food. You had Gahuli still. And so they had to have a retail space in there that wasn't food related because otherwise they were going to go over the requirement for parking allowances. Gotcha. So, so we go in and we go through and we look at it and he's like, well, this is the rent. And I was like, okay, we'll do it. And he goes, well, we'll start the credit check on Monday. Oh. And John and I started laughing. and was like, I can tell you right now, we can't pass a credit check. <laughs> he goes, well, can you pay the bill? And I go, well, we should be able to for the first six or seven months. And we're going to want to after that. <laughs> he goes, all right. And we shook a hand. That was it. He, he took a hand, he handed wow. us a tick, a key. And then Vern moved out, and he and his daughter moved over by Oklahoma Joe's. Good people. I mean, they just the neighborhood was changing. And you get those pressures, mm-hmm. and uh, we they they gave us the key, and we had like thirty five days to turn it from a barber shop into a bookstore, <laughs> and all we had were six thousand books. <laughs> you had thirty one days. Thirty five days. Thirty five days. So yeah. what did that even look? It like? was insane. Yeah, I bet. it was. Fucking insane. Okay. Mad scramble. Well, and the, 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 the reason we had that time frame was on November 19th is the anniversary of the day Sylvia Beach opened Shakespeare and Company in the left bank of Paris, which became the center of the moderns. Um, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Gertrude Stein, right. Apollinaire, James Joyce. I mean, you got Picasso. Everybody was there. Day one, we, I won, I insisted on that juju. <laughs> and, I mean, insisted on it. And so we were we got all of our families in here all night long. We're working. And we just worked and worked and worked. And I ended up getting food poisoning the night before we opened. No. Bad. Wow. Bad. <laughs> and so I'm in there sweating and stuff. So we opened on the day like we were supposed to. Packed fucking house. It was great. I mean, and we'd had help from all of the great bookstores. And I mean, Tom Shaver at Bloomsday, which was a brilliant bookstore. He'd given us shelves to get started and Whistlers had giving us an awning because they were gone and, and some other display stuff. And I mean, we'd already started absorbing stuff out of Billy Miller. And these, I mean, the great bookstores of legend in Kansas City that I had grown up in were helping us get open down here. Wow. Two crazy young men, you know, and... We ended up getting it done, and I mean, I still remember uh, Walt Bodine, who had a great radio show in town, really famous. Uh, he, he was in there the night we were in a used bookstore, and he's hiding signed copies of his books in all of our shelves and shit like this. <laughs> I love that. But during the process, you know, I mean, John's parents had their car stolen out of the back thing while we were up all night one night. Uh, it was just insane, but we got it open. Wow! And now here we are, twenty-five it, years later. It's funny is that before we, even when we had 
paper up in the window when we were working on it. Tom Wayne had just literally moved into the neighborhood like two weeks earlier. Uh-huh. And he just sticks his head in the door one day, you know, and he's like, what are you doing? We had him building bookshelves, John and he and Tom. And, so Tom was already there from the very beginning. And we had a kind of a personal tragedy in the first year or so. One of the people who had become close to us in the place killed himself throwing himself off a bridge. And John decided that he was not going to deal with retail mm. anymore in that kind of pressures. And then uh, Tom stepped in. I'm still in Iowa, and I looked at Tom and Jason Reberg, the poet, and Brandon Whitehead, the poet, and I go, I'm either going to close this fucking thing because I'm going to Iowa. <laughs> I'm going to be in Iowa most of the weeks, mm-hmm. uh, or else you guys are going to keep it open for free, and out of that we'll come up with some kind of a deal where you own a part of it. Mm-hmm. And that was that. That was that. Wow. I didn't know. I didn't know that they. It was Reberg and who? Tom Wayne and Brandon Whitehead. Tom, well, yeah. Tom Wayne and uh, Brian, Brandon Whitehead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, I'll have Reberg and Tom Wayne on here too. Yeah. To you can get Brandon on here. He's mad at me, but I'm mad at him too. It's okay. 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 Sounds good. <laughs> he still oh. runs the best poetry reading in the city anymore, and uh-huh. he's a good guy. He's a little Eeyore-ish, but great guy, man. I, mean, I love Brandon. He's okay. a fucking great poet too, but. Mm-hmm. Well, like so said, that was bump heads, right? That was that was at the uh, location across the street, which is not the location we are in right now, which is the iconic brick building with the three stories of books. Yep. Which how many books do you think? Is fifty-four, fifty-five thousand. Yeah. Fifty-four, fifty-five thousand skews. Okay. So there you are. We're surrounded by fifty-four. Yeah, I mean that's DVDs, books. records, yeah, CDs, all of the stuff we have. Uh, just about what it is. I mean, we've counted a couple times a year. It's usually a day or two, and you know, we buy a fifth of something, and we literally got our pag, and you count to ten, and you put tick one, two, three, four, five, nine, ten, tick one, two, three, four, five, six, nine, ten, tick, and like ten people go through the building, and there we are. We've just done inventory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people come in there all the time and are asking me to search up specific books or. Do you have a system or anything? I have a system. I know what I have, system. probably. Here. <laughs> you can't see it. <laughs> Jesse always laughs at me because I'm very visual, and I always like, can you show me a picture of the cover? Uh-huh. I look at the cover, and it's like, I have a pretty good idea where the cover is. If I've seen it in the last six months, I have a pretty good idea what I did with it. Right. So and We're pretty organized, man. I mean, you can yeah. find about 70% of the time, if we have it, we can find it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, I w- I describe it as organized chaos. It is. Yeah. It's not chaos, brother. You, there's go some bookstores. There's some chaos out there. Yeah, you're right. This you're is right. not chaos. You're this right. is pretty organized. You're right. But uh, you touched on it earlier with Shakespeare and Company, uh, and then there's you know the bookstores have always been the center of some sort of odd things that are circulating around the bookstore. You have Shakespeare and Company. You have City of Lights in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, do you like what have you witnessed? What have, uh, obviously I know of some of the the things that you've had gone up here. One of the one of the great discoveries that you've discovered is books don't burn well. <laughs> That's one of them. Uh, but yeah, why don't you tell me about some of the uh, you you guys have had the longest poetry reading uh, of all time. Uh, we, I, we you stole pretty... the world record. Yeah, you know, as far as I think somebody claimed they beat us out of Iowa, but they did it with 18 people uh-huh. and they were reading like an hour a person and they may have beat us or they may not have. Okay. But I mean, the record's it, five days? 
five days and some hours. Five days of straight poetry. Quite a, yeah, 24 hours a day. In this building? This building. This 219 building. readers from 19 states. So it was broadcast. Bill Peck broadcast it way back in the day, live on the internet. We did it live. Dude. Oh, that's probably so hot. There I don't much. know. Yeah. And it was funny. We'd have, we, and you could see the time is that on the computer screen, you could see people commenting from all over the globe oh as you're God. reading yeah. and stuff. And then uh, it was a live stream. Yeah, it was great. It was so much fun. We had, there was a, there was like a class in England that was using our poetry reading with a class in Spain to mm-hmm. both work on their language skills, but they were watching our poetry reading and you'd catch them posting back and forth, you know, and, yeah. you know, you know, Peck and I or whoever wasn't reading because you, you had about 20, we gave everybody about a 20 minute window and we just lined people up and went through them. And, uh, and but when you weren't reading, we were, st- st- Brandon did all the nights upstairs behind the bookcase. You can still see his scrawl on the wall that says, you know, like Captain Flying Monkey Pants through 37 missions, you know, or something like that. <laughs> it's on the wall behind the books upstairs. You know? Oh, I would love to see that. Do I have to ply the bookshelf <laughs> off? But no, no, you can just pull the books back. I okay, can show cool, it to you. It's cool. pretty fun. And it's one of the few things we left from, because uh, upstairs wasn't fully developed at that point. It was just, we had just pouring out walls right. and it was pretty raw. Right. But, but I guess what the what I want to question and focus on is this kind of um, thing or people, cast of characters and just art that seems to gather here, uh, obviously facilitated by you and Thomas Wayne. Um, but like what got, what was the first idea that you thought, hey, let's do a poetry reading? It was, well, that was Jason and Phil Miller's fault. Okay. I mean. When we opened up, we opened up November 19th, and like right around Christmas, the first live music thing we did happened, and there's a guy named Chad Rex who is, go Google his ass on Spotify. That boy's got some chops. Okay. But, and he, he'd written a really great album, had a lot to do with Mark Hennessy and Paw breaking up and having studio time, which they gave to him, which allowed him to record an album above and beyond the budget mm-hmm. that... <laughs> people sometimes don't have if you don't have labels right <laughs> and uh he recorded a great album but we I mean he and chris pilgrim performed a show and we were off i mean very quick because again i told you i opened on that date on purpose right i mean sylvia beach published joyce's ulysses out of her own pocket okay yeah, <laughs> it's most of the day november 19th november 19th yeah yeah and uh we uh i mean that was 1997 yeah, that's when we opened. Yeah. And, and she'd done it. I don't even remember when it was. It was a long time ago. But, uh, I mean, we started music within a month or so. I mean, Jason Reberg and a guy named Phil Miller, the godfather of poetry. He's a terrible poet. He's a terrible poet. <laughs> Phil Miller is one of the most important men in Kansas City poetry history, period. And uh, he, as, as a writer himself, but as a facilitator, and uh, he died several years back. After Jason helped move him to Ohio, and I had got him on the radio, and we pub- we've published his last two or three books, and you know, he was just a great man and uh, an important man. And uh, they-, they walked in, and they were like, well, we do this. He had this thing called Riverfront Readings, and he was associated with the Writer's Place, which is another important nonprofit in the region here for years and years. And But he was taking stuff out that wasn't there, and it it wasn't centric, and he's taking out and doing readings in weird places. So he brought Jason Reberg, a guy named Bob Savino, and both Jason and Bob are night security guards at the Nelson. 
Wow. <laughs> and both of them come in and they, they do a reading in our old store. And uh, I mean, you got Sharon Iker, who was also a damn night security guard at the Nelson. We had all the, we had this nexus of people roaming around amongst the great paintings overnight, writing poetry in the giant caverns of marble, you During know. the witching hours. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. Wow. But, but yeah, he's, we started immediately. And they did one, they did a riverfront. And then Jason and I hooked up and became really good friends, as did Bob. And we very quickly started doing Prospero's Pocket Poets. I had texted uh, Ferlinghetti at City Lights because they had a thing called the Pocket Poet Series in which they, you know, Kerouac and Corso and Ginsburg and the who's who. And I'd sent him a note. Like, I own this little bookstore, and we know we have nobody. I want to do an homage to you. We want to call it Prospero's Pocket Poets or the P3. Right. And he gets, I get this text back from him. He's like, You're going to publish, you're publishing Americans? And I go, Yeah, contemporary, regional people. He goes, Sure, you can use it. I gave up on them a long time ago. <laughs> Is that the, <laughs> the Ferling guy, my, my, my email correspondence with Ferling Getty. Is, is that it? Have you ever it. heard it from him again? Yeah, we talked a couple times. Okay. So, cool. And I went out there a couple times. So Cool. But Very anyway, cool. he just died like a year and a half ago, yeah, two years ago, 101 years old, the last real original beat. Uh-huh. Finally. And he'd, he'd, I'd been trying to get him to do something. He's like, I don't travel anymore. And besides, I paint. <laughs> but wow, but, that's pretty cool that you were you had any correspondence with well, him at yeah, all. We've we've laughed about this. Is that from what we've started? And we, again, it's part of a deliberation. If you make yourself available to the universe, quite often opportunities you at least recognize opportunities when they show themselves. Mm-hmm. Don't want to be all do 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 do. But you know, he's like you know, we, we had real good association with Burroughs and the guys out of Lawrence and the Beats, right. and um, you know. William S. Burroughs pinched Reberg's ass one night while he was building his fucking pond in his backyard. No way. <laughs> All right. Well, you have to tell that story. I just did. That's... <laughs> Ask Unreal. Jason about that. Unreal. That's a, a holy ass right there. <laughs> I mean, we've been, for, you know, and it's, you know, the other big cultural thing in our, of the life, the generation right before us was the Kennedy assassination and Charles Grodin, Charles Grodin, Robert Grodin, who had released the Pruder film as a young man in, to the Congress under Dick Gregory's direction. He'd stolen this film that he had thought that the, the CIA and FBI had brought to that company he worked for in New York, and he just took it and released it on national TV. It was how we get to see, we get to see Kennedy getting shot. Uh-huh. And Mrs. Kennedy crawling across the back. That film came out of Grodin. Mm-hmm. I released his last book. Wow. I spent over a year working on it because he couldn't get it published. Huh. A thousand photographs. And no, a lot of them had never been seen. Wow. And uh, I mean, so we've ended up at the nexus of a whole bunch of what had come before that was important that we homage. There's a lot of shit that's come before that's important that just isn't our corner of the game, you know? I mean, we're, we're beatier. We're a lot more dirt under your fingernails. Still pretty... I mean, pretty dedicated to the idea of literature as a form of art that mm-hmm. requires effort, you know? Right. You know, what's the old story Jason likes to tell us about um, the automatic writer guy? And he's in he's he's in Paris, and somebody's banging on his door to talk to him, and he he won't stop writing. And they come in, and they go, but what about automatic writing? He goes, well, it wasn't automatic enough. <laughs> you know, he'd been reworking his automatic writing. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I do want to take a second to just like clarify what beats are for people who don't understand. But like beatniks were basically they were a writer, a generation of writers and poets that uh kind of came during the war war fifties. Bef- yeah, fifties. And they pre-sixties. The yeah, and sixties they co- became the voice the voice of the sixties, but they'd already been going for ten years. Right. Mean, um you know, and it's I have this I'm a I I am you know, both Tom and Jason probably share more assonance with them philosophically than I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm more of the Ferlinghetti character of the yeah. group, but because uh, people forget, you know, Ferlinghetti graduated from the Sorbonne and commanded an anti-sub vehicle in ship in World War II. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he was the last man they threatened to put in jail for publishing a fucking book in the United States. That is until the new Republican assholes are out here banning. I was looking at the list today, what they're banning in Florida. It's, it's it makes. It's leaving shelves empty in schools. You know, come here. We'll buy you the fucking book. Yeah. All right? Right now. There I'm it just goes. telling you. Yeah. It's out there on the radio <laughs> waves. All you need is a bunch of puckered, scrotum up to their Adam's apple, puckered individuals jumping up and down screaming, you can't do this. Read it. Yeah. Just read it. You definitely I mean, should read it. Read that thing. That's your sign. That's like the thing is like, read this. It's like yeah. a giant thing. Because exactly. you know why? Because it's opposed to those puckered motherfuckers. Amen. <laughs> Amen. No, yeah. So, yeah, basically. But one time earlier, uh, when I was first getting here, you kind of described to me like the generations of beats and where you guys land. I mean, there's they considered you know there was the beats and there was a second wave. Sanders, who's actually a Kansas City man, lived out in Blue Springs. There's a kind of a third wave, which is Tom Waits and some folks of Bukowski kind of were considered. And then there's proto, there's pro, yeah, Hunter S. Yeah. There's proto people too. You got, you know, real, not Rilke, um, um, Baudelaire, and, and then there's another guy, I'm, too many white claws. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's oh. Rimbaud. So uh-huh. I'm thinking, I'm not Rilke, Rimbaud, Baudelaire, there were pre beats. Then you had the beats, you know, Kerouac, Ginsburg. Ferlinghetti, Corso. I mean, there were just a pile. That's of, the first. Yeah, and then yeah. the women too. I don't want to be. I mean, I mean, there was a bunch of great women writers in there too. Mm-hmm. Then there was like a kind of a second wave of that immediate beat section, and they were very influenced by jazz, bebop jazz particularly. And you get right. the you get the images of the beret and the smoke and the finger snapping, and mm-hmm. it's those things were very co belligerent. And aesthetically harmonious or harmonious to each other, uh, and then you get after them, you end up getting you know Ricky Lee Jones and Tom Waits and people who kind of came the next Hunter S. Thompson, who were the next Bill Murray. I mean, you ever see that great picture of Bill Murray and Hunter S. Thompson riding around on the boat together? <laughs> well, he's in the one movie um, based off Hunter S. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where the Buffalo Roam. Yeah, where the Buffalo Roam. Yeah. yeah. So in depth, you yeah. know, I mean, there's an ethos of being we. Very early on, we were some of the earlier things we tried to do to make what we were doing a little more official. Never really took, but um, we were calling it culture counter as opposed to counter cultural because that had already become mired into its own La Brea tar pit of unintended shit glomming onto right. it. When you stand in opposition, and not always, but in a big, big swath of it, when you're in real opposition to where the culture is headed and what the culture is prioritizing and how it's treating people and stuff, you know? I mean, that's the ethos. The ethos is, I don't want it written poorly. That's not an excuse to have shitty made crap written poorly and show up. 
do the work. The work is hard. The work is requires diligence and attention. And there are people like Hitchens who I'm certain did the work, but you know, the magic fairy of hyper intelligence and luck goes bing and you can just pull it off. Mm. I can't. It takes a lot more work. Right. But it's okay. What else you got to do with your life? Of course, right. <laughs> right. Well, so yeah, and then that come kind of comes to doing the work which so you You're st- doing. Yeah. <laughs> so you start so you, you start uh um with music, and then you start to get into poetry. Is that what Reberg's doing? Is that? I mean, Reberg and and, and yeah, I mean, yeah. and I love me. I mean, again, when I go back to the story out of the Bible that I love is that a long time ago, organized religion stopped doing, even when it's working well, stopped doing what it needed to do for me. And the only place I find that anymore is in live music. Mm. I mean, it's there's a moment of transcendence that I just can't access from anything else I'm doing at all. Yep. And live music done well just takes you up into the everything all eternal that's good. Right. And uh, so for me, that's been more important. I mean, Jason, I mean, we, we started the publishing house like immediately. We started Spartan Press. We originally called it Unholy Day Press. That's not true. We originally called it Spartan. Then the 911 happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And the second 911 happened, we started working on asking our best customers and best artists, is like, what's important to you that's changed since this moment? And that was our first book. And the very first book we ever released that was actually had a spine. And like we're gluing rubber cement in my living room and putting it under the sofa chair legs to make it hold together, you know. And and the guy up the street who just sold his place, Tom, had, had a he's, he's again another good Christian man in the, in the right kind. He's a decent man and he knew who we were and always knew we were just a little surly for him. Right. <laughs> but he knew that we got in a tight spot. And he's like using his guillotine to make sure we could – because our – publisher the printer dropped us the week before it had to happen we're wanting it out by 911 on the year anniversary you know and like he he helped us get it out even though we didn't necessarily share our pov right <laughs> but he got it done you know and he's gone now but hmm. well so i guess what i'm getting at is where when when does prospero when does prospero's pit come in and Ah, within a year. Within I mean, a year. Yeah, maybe less. Mm-hmm. So we started having open readings. Um, it, it was, there was there was nothing like it back then. I mean, it was Kansas City. I mean, you still didn't have Slam wasn't here and all that stuff. And and we were it. I mean, we had eighty people, and it was pretty. It had its moments. <laughs> <laughs> Fist fights over whether James Joyce's poetry rolling into the middle of 39th Street. <laughs> <laughs> I can just tell by the grin that spread across your face. It was great. Kind of get some glimpses. <laughs> it of was that. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, it was great. I mean, we, I mean, we were able to, in a weird way, bring together i mean poetry is very clickish there's nothing like an art form that doesn't make any money to make people people involved in it brutal mm-hmm. <laughs> they'll cut each other's legs off for nothing mm-hmm. and we were fortunate for a bit we ended up having a lot of different places came together from the universities to the more established poetry community to this to the yeah, i mean some were like 
Bob Walkenhorst, the Rainmakers, and Pat Tomic almost came out of retirement. They hadn't done anything in years, and they performed at one of our things earlier. Like 85 people hanging from a rafter in a room this size, right down here where we're sitting. Wow. And <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> I bet. I mean, I, I lived... You did Jan Vermeer there. and it, Like my first book release, we did it here, and this was so full up here. We got this guy named George Dezio who had retired for years. George's Cheese and Sausage. Many people will know about George's. George was a... He cooked in the basement here, and we had people outside and down the street. Bidwell was... We'd, we'd blown his pictures of the bridges up and we'd hung them up above us and in upstairs and we'd moved wow. all of the furniture out of the room and we had so many people in here for that reading and Reberg released his book down here and we covered every bookshelf in plastic black bags because we ended up having the litigators play which was one of the great punk bands in the city at this point and we'd moved everything out of here yeah. we had to cover everything in plastic because you didn't know what the fuck was going to happen oh my gosh and what did happen oh <laughs> uh, we had a good time <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I feel like I sort of lived through it just through your guys' stories about the pit, but I have never experienced anything like it. I've never seen anything like it. Before I got this job at Prospero's, I didn't even really know that there was a poetry scene. Like, I didn't know that it was sort of like that. And so it's kind of been an introduction for me through this uh, beautiful place that to see this still kind of living on, but the pit specifically. Now you're guys' stuff, brother. It's not me. I'm an old geezer. Yeah, well. I'll I show up and to... pee in the corner and pass out. Yeah, hopefully. See, we're trying to avoid the garbage or the, the black yeah, bags on Tom the Tom will absolutely have have conniption. Yeah, so, so <laughs> we're trying to do a little more one-on-one, -on -one, a little quieter, a little softer. But, um, yeah, I don't know. What what was your guys' concept from the get-go? What was the idea behind the pit? What were, what were you trying to there do? There was no ideas, man. It was just come do shit that's words. Uh -huh. And, I mean, I mean, when we started publishing, and my goal was always to publish, as was Jason's, and that our big deal was that very early on, we really heavily insisted on the experience on the page, had to mirror quite a bit the experience of live and it was i mean because there, there's two different sets of pressures there i mean making sense where somebody can stop and go back and check your spelling and crap versus what you're doing in a room and you know people forget you know that you know like poetry has always been a live thing and the things that everybody bitches about now meter and rhyme and stuff it's what homer used mm. all right because even before TV, it's really hard to hold somebody's attention span <laughs> without meter and rhyme and dynamic and physicality and all of this stuff. Those things were skill groups. And you know where that really started, and from what I can see, started coming out of it, is when E.E. E. Cummings, who was one of my single favorite poets, had been watching Picasso and starts applying cubism to poetry, which made it a visual thing that had to happen on a page and not in a room. Mm. And, and even then, you know, you can, you, you can start picking apart E.E. Cummings, because about 70% of his poems are a fucking uh, sonnet anyway. <laughs> I mean, it's got, you read them to where your natural breaks are, it's a fucking sonnet. Mm -hmm. Even though it's a leaf falls, you know, and all this stuff, it's, in you know, right about the time we started doing this stuff nationally, uh, there was a big movement to bring spoken word back into a live setting, which changes the pressures and the skill groups that are necessary to make people. 
I, I, I have a big problem with competition and a lot of stuff, not that competition isn't fun and enjoyable, but when you inject that into things, it forces, it, it, particularly when you're making awards, it forces things down into criteria. So it's either going to make you cry or it's going to shock you. And that doesn't represent the scope of the human experience. It's, easier to monitor and give an award out at the end of the evening because if you hit these three things, you know, but I I, have, I I think we've lost something from those kind of pressures. Thank goodness I think those pressures have abated a bit. Mm-hmm. Not that a little bit of them aren't, isn't nice, but. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, nowadays with, I feel like everybody's attention span being so, so short. It is. Where do you see a, the poet's place? You know, generally my response to whenever anything becomes kind of an overwhelming thing is that you do exactly the opposite. Mm. Is that, you know, we're into printing shit. And it's like, I'm okay with long form. And Mm. blow me. (laughs) William Blake once had this statement that I do not write for anybody who can't understand me. <laughs> like we do, you know, you, you you always there's always a series of pressures, and the pressures of the artist is to always challenge. Sometimes with love, sometimes with you know a fist, the whatever the established thing is that's trying to say you have to do something this way. Again, the game's a flux. I mean, it's it lives and breathes. I watched the folks you brought in. You you did a reading here not too long ago, or helped orchestrate a reading, and yeah. I, I try and stay aware and pay attention to what's new that's going on. And sometimes I go, I just don't get it aesthetically, and who cares mm-hmm. <laughs> what I get or not. That also doesn't mean I have to pay attention, but it's right. it, who cares. I mean, the world's, the, the game's afoot. You guys are doing stuff. This is your generation. And one of the great things that I saw in you when you applied is that you, like, it's very obvious that you're pushing towards this stuff and you're using new media and you're using film and you're using all these new tools that we didn't have in the old days to do different things. Do them. Mm-hmm. So well, have at it. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. I mean, here I am. <laughs> uh, but I, th- I think, I don't know. That's, that has been the through line since getting to know you and working uh, alongside you. Um, because we are, oh, you're, we're publishing a zine. We are orphanage. publishing it. I'm fucking the orphanage, brother. The, the, I, I the orphanage. Pronounce, pronounce yeah. it differently. You're right. That being said, you're right. It's what the orphanage is. is coming out soon. Yeah, as soon as the fuckers land, they're yeah, here. Exactly. It, it's coming out, and and that I remember specifically the line you used, which is everybody's getting out of print right now, and I think that sounds like we can corner the market. <laughs> Which I think, uh, I remember you saying that and sitting there and being like, well, he might have a point, actually. What did it mean? Where do you advertise? You advertise on long clicks? Do you pay attention to any of that shit? No. Yeah, you advertise? You fucking put up flyers and direct mail people postcards. Right. Yeah, that's the old school, like, it's... Nobody else is doing it. You're it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're the ones who's showing up to the door. But um, that, going on what I was saying was, I feel like that's one of the things that you've been passing on to me which has been just do it just mm-hmm. like get up there read your stuff just do something set up the mic do something mm-hmm. and yeah see two mics yeah, yeah here we are but I, i'm just like curious 
what if you had any words of encouragement or anything for people the, the my generation this generation that is like thinking that hey maybe think like like I said I didn't even know that poetry there was a scene I didn't even know that was something that was going on but here I am and it feels like now that I've like found it it feels like I've accessed something that has been calling me for some time and I'm curious if you have any words of encouragement for people like me or anyone. Anybody, man. I mean, we in the human condition are responding to everything around us all the time. Those of an artistic bent are taking in stuff, processing it through an alive mind, and then regurgitating it out there or presenting it in a way that hopefully it gets a response. Sometimes ridiculousness, sometimes rebellion, sometimes assonance and celebration together, you know, capture your own time. I mean, there was a time before the World Wide Web where every single city in small town in America had a poetry scene, had a music scene. Most of them sucked. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was theirs. It was there. It was their place. It was the people they knew. They were doing their thing, capturing their time. Sometimes that the quality and what was said was so important and had so much resonance that grunge happened or the Atlanta sound happened. And the truth is, is for 50 or 100 years, those things haven't been happening in L.A. or New York. Mm-hmm. They just haven't been. All of the really important things have been happening. It's Copper Canyon Press. It's, it's not happening. It's happening all over the place. You know, you kind of get lost. And I, I find it actually reassuring when you stop con- being concerned about whether you're going to have a global outreach and one million clicks. You're just doing your thing right here. You you have to answer to yourself as a person who's alive right now, seeing crap. And are you celebrating it? Are you denigrating it? Are you speaking out against it? Are you trying to encourage it? It's what we do. I mean, it's what humans do. It's one of the single most centric, important things that we do is we look at our universe that we're alive in, we respond to it, and we share those responses with each other. Mm-hmm. And just do it. You just do it. And you can't worry about whether you're going to be Madonna. Because I'm going to tell you, uh, that's a bad example because a lot of people want to be Madonna. Whether you want to be Celine Dion. (laughs) (laughs) Celine Dion is a pristine practitioner and nobody fucking cares. Because the art isn't there. It's she's a tactician. She's not an artist. And I know this was a big fight in Rolling Stone two weeks ago. Mm. Uh, I must piss somebody off. I'm certain. But, Probably. I mean, and that's okay. It's yeah. good to piss people off too. Yeah. Yeah, hope hope that's that exactly what we what do, do. Yeah, you know, raises something of a response. That I means somebody's paying attention to you. Yeah. And to respond to it. So I mean, be honest. Be moderately fair. Take your digs. Mm-hmm. It's okay. <laughs> well, beautiful. I I do want to. I was kind of you know, uh, debating this question because this was sort of something that I had overheard and then was kind of interviewing people about it. But I'll either answer it or I won't. Yeah. Someone, someone asked me or someone told me that a story loses power the more people hear it. Ask the people who read the Bible. I don't know if that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. But that, just do it. <laughs> depends on if it's a good story or not. Right. right. Probably. Mm. So, I mean, that's the big thing. I mean, it's like, is, is Shakespeare going to be read 100 years from now? He is. He's already been read 400 years. He's, 
Milton, maybe not quite as much as Shakespeare, but probably Chaucer's the same thing. What's the new guys? Is it Hemingway? Is it Steinbeck? Is it somebody else? You know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You, you can't. I don't know that you can. It, you, you have to not. You have to be as an artist. I think aware of an audience and the audience isn't just who's sitting in front of you and that audience is not just geographic it's also across time you have to be aware of it that being said i don't know mm-hmm. right do what do what you want like i mean yeah do yeah. the best you can at whatever the hell it is you're doing and give it to the world and the world's either going to figure it out or not and fuck them Amen. <laughs> I think that's a great way to end this, honestly. <laughs> but uh, thanks for being on. I hope to have you back on. This is Dude, your place. Thanks for doing all. this. No, this is yeah. your place. Yeah. Well, I th- appreciate everything you've done for me, and I'm so thankful for this opportunity. But yeah. W.E. Lethem, everybody. <laughs> thanks so much. Good night. Good time. We ran out of beer. Yeah, cool. Cheers. <laughs>